Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us and welcome. Uh, I'm Elliot Beard, a loans partner in our London banking team. Uh, and our panel today includes Lee Irvin, a partner in our debt capital markets team in Dubai, Pierre Summerfield, who heads our debt capital markets team in London, France Vasseau, a partner and sustainable finance expert in our Paris office, and Oliver West, a partner in our structured finance and derivatives team here in London. Thanks, Elliot. Welcome, everyone, to our discussion on ESG bonds, loans and derivatives. In this session, we'll take stock of where we are, take a look at some themes in and trends in the market and look at the challenges that need to be overcome in order for real progress on sustainability and debt to be made. We'll look at proceeds based debt and sustainability linked debt across product areas and we'll focus on transition finance, too. What do we mean by that? Well, transition finance is typically defined as any form of financial support that helps high carbon companies start to implement long term changes to become greener. It bridges the gap between traditional and sustainable financing as, bus as businesses begin the journey to net zero. Starting with bonds, if we rewind all the way back to the time of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, we come to the first ever green bonds as investors sought to invest in projects that help the world's climate. Since then, the green bond market has experienced staggering growth and green bonds have become truly mainstream. The type of green bonds issued then were pure use of proceeds bonds. What that means is the issuer of the bonds stated publicly its intention to use the proceeds raised for climate related projects. While this is still the most common type of ESG bonds that we see issued today, of course, we've seen this type of instrument evolve to include social bonds, use the foreign finance social projects, and sustainable bonds, which are like a combination of green and social bonds. That's right. And the market infrastructure for this kind of bond has also evolved. Currently, by reference to a set of principles put together by the International Capital Markets Association, or ICMA, which on one level is quite interesting. Here's this huge, vitally important market founded on a set of voluntary principles that are not legally binding. What do you make of that, Lee? Well, the work of ICMA in this area has been hugely important, and the green market has functioned very well since its inception. They're not perfect. The risk of greenwashing does seem to hang over the market a little, as it does with ESG generally. This is not something that's unique to the bond world. Um, but then sustainability-linked bonds have been introduced to give ESG bonds some more teeth. What, what do you mean by that, Lee? What is that? Well, unlike a classic green bond, where the company is really just committing itself publicly to a specific use of proceeds that is considered to be green, a, a typical sustainability-linked bonds includes targets in the form of key performance indicators or KPIs that are tested during the life of the bonds and that will actually have an impact on the terms of the bond themselves if they're not met, typically in the form of a coupon step-up. So you could say this is a case of the issuer putting its money where its mouth is when it comes to issuing green bonds. Okay, right. That's interesting. And that's a growing market. Although green bond issuance more widely did slip a bit in 2022, though that's at least partly down to a wider decline in activity in the bond markets last year due to other obvious macroeconomic factors, the proportion of this type of issuance relative to global bond issuance more widely 
was reported to have remained stable. Now, having said that, still a very small proportion of total bond issuance. We're talking single-figure percentages versus the total. So there's clearly much, clearly potential for much larger growth. Is that something you're expecting to see more of in Dubai, Lee? Yes. Um, I mean, the Middle East has traditionally been a little behind Europe with these kind of instruments. We didn't get our first green bond until 2017, so 10 years after the first green bond started appearing in Europe. Uh, but we are catching up fast. We advised on the first 81 sustainable sukuk for Riyadh Bank last year. And actually just this month, Sharjah became the first Middle East sovereign to issue a green bond. So I suspect it's only a matter of time until we start seeing more sustainability-linked bonds in the Middle East um, catching up with the trend in Europe. Oh, that's good news. So what are the challenges to overcome here? Well, companies need to buy into this as do investors. They need to weigh up the commercial benefits versus the perceived risks, not least the reputational risk and possibly market or legal risk of any accusation of greenwashing. There are accusations that have been leveled against some sustainability-linked bond issuances that their KPIs are set simply too low or they're too easy to hit, so they're not really making a meaningful impact. Issuers also, perhaps understandably, are concerned to retain flexibility around how the KPIs are measured, which means a balance needs to be struck between protecting the interests of an issuer, particularly in, say, a bond with a five-year term in a volatile economic climate, and having a bond that will really make a difference in the world of transition finance. Yeah, that is true. Um, but I think the field of transition finance is such an important area for companies that they need to have the opportunity to issue the kind of instrument. So I can only see the market increasing. It will no doubt continue to develop. It's likely there's going to be some sort of legislative impact as regulators seek to introduce more of a legally binding structure around this type of instrument. But I don't see that stopping the progress here. And of course, while the bond markets have perhaps been the most visible type of this financing, this is also just one component of the whole market infrastructure. So with that in mind, Elliot, you're a partner in the loans team in London. What are you seeing on this? Thanks, Lee. Yeah, look, you know, that's really interesting. And many of the same themes uh, that you've mentioned uh, are at play in the loan markets too. In terms of proceeds-based debt, so debt issued, that has to be used for prescribed ESG purposes. The market is still very much focused on the E in ESG. You know, issuances are down on last year, as you peers mentioned, uh, but there's been an increase in the sophistication and variety of the debt instruments in the market. We've seen the rise of blue loans and bonds. That's where proceeds of debt are used for the protection of marine ecosystems, and more broadly, for projects relating to things like improving uh, seaworkers' working conditions, access to drinking water in coastal communities, uh, water and waste management, maritime transport, coastal ecotourism, and sustainable fishing, and so on. We've also seen an increased focus on the S in ESG, and the social loan principles have been important in driving that. Here, proceeds are used for projects aiming to mitigate the effects of a particular social issue or to aid vulnerable people. Examples include affordable housing, employment generation, increased educational attainment, food security, and general socioeconomic environment. We even saw the so-called Rhino bond being issued last year, which operated as a normal bond, say that the coupon was paid into the conservation program with investors to be paid out, depending on the success of the initiative, which was aimed at increasing the number of black rhino in Africa.
the investor payment should it be made will be funded by a philanthropic element. It remains to be seen whether conservation loans and bonds will take off as a separate class of sustainable debt. As Piers mentioned, transition loans are a key way to allow borrowers and issuers to access the sustainable debt markets who wouldn't ordinarily be able to do so given their so-called brown characteristics, the obvious example being oil and gas companies. Although some borrowers and issuers have made um, and been active in the market um, with transition debt, the market remains challenging and has yet to really take off. Part of the reason for this is a lack of established um, transition debt principles and standardised metrics for evaluating the extent to which decarbonisation projects can qualify for transition finance. And we hear from clients that they can use other forms of sustainable debt to affect a similar outcome. For example, sustainability-linked loans, which have more established principles underpinning them. Thanks, Elliot. Can I make some observation of what I've seen in the French market? Mm. The European Central Bank has decided at once, with coupon structure linked, to certain sustainability performance targets will be eligible as collateral for your system credit operation and also for your system outreach purchase for monetary policy purpose, provided they comply with all other eligibility criteria. So, since 1st January 2021, environmental SLBs have been eligible as collateral for the Europe the Euro system and for the corporate sector purchase program. This decision partly explained the growth of the European market. According to Banque of France, Banque de France, in the first half of 2022, almost 16 billion euro was raised by SLBs. For example, of the French market, in last November, Orange, the well-known French uh, telecom operator, announced that it signed an agreement with 27 international banks for a new sustainability-linked multi-currency of 6 billion euros syndicated revolving facilities in order to refine to refine in advance its existing facility expired December 2023. That's interesting. Great. Thanks, Thanks France. Um, I think now it might be time to, to sort of take a quick step back and look at the core components of sustainability-linked loans. Um, there are five key elements at play here, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, the first one is the selection of KPIs. We should they should be materials of the borrower's core sustainability and business strategy and address relevant ESG challenges. And importantly, they must be genuine, objective, and rigorous. They cannot be business as usual KPIs. They must really straight the borrower to perform better than ever before on the particular metric. Second, the principles require sustainability performance targets to be set in good faith and remain relevant for so long as they apply. What's clear is SBTs should be set taking account of, perf of recent performance data and should be over a three-year time frame. Borrowers are encouraged to seek input from an external party as to the appropriateness of the KPI and SVTs. Where they don't, it's recommended that the borrower demonstrated the internal expertise to verify its methodologies. Elliot, what about the loan's characteristics? Yeah, sure. So 
the key characteristic of a sustainability linked loan is that an economic outcome is linked to the borrower's performance against its predetermined KPIs and SPTs. That's to say the margin will rise and fall depending on ESG performance. It'll be clear in the facility agreement that failure to meet KPIs will not be an event of default, nor will the failure to deliver a KPI certificate, although misrepresenting KPI information sometimes does constitute a breach. But the only direct consequence of meeting or failing to meet KPIs will be an adjustment in the margin. It's typical to see two-way margin adjustments depending on the number of KPIs met. It's a matter for negotiation, but one common uh, formulation is three, three KPIs met, margin reduced by five basis points, one to two KPIs met, no margin adjustment at all, and no KPIs met or no certificate delivered, margin increased by five bips. It's also fairly common for the amounts represented by the pricing changes on the loan to be applied in a specific manner, so not just kept by the bank and the borrower. For example, the borrower could agree to donate margin savings to charity or to reinvest them towards meeting the SPTs or its other ESG goals. In terms of lenders, for some, the perception of benefiting from a failure to meet SPTs of their borrower has meant that either lenders have agreed to pay those increased amounts to charity or have allowed the borrower to retain the increased margins, um, provided that it applies those increased amounts towards SBTs or other um, ESG goals of it. Um, but equally often, the facility agreement is silent on how lenders should apply any increased margin. Um, the fourth principle relates to reporting. Uh, borrowers should, at least annually, provide sufficient information to lenders to allow them to monitor performance of the SBTs and to determine that the SBTs remain ambitious and relevant to the borrower's business. <coughs> Excuse me, that's the point you folks were making um, a second ago. Um, and finally, the fifth principle requires that borrowers obtain independent and external verification of their performance against the SBTs and KPIs by a qualified external reviewer with relevant expertise, such as an auditor, uh, environmental consultant, uh, or independent ratings agency at least once a year. Transactions without independent and external verification of performance will not meet the requirements to constitute a sustainability-linked loan. Um, I think there are a couple of really important points here. The first, I think, is what we said about key loan characteristics. Ultimately, the economic incentives for companies to meet ESG targets set out in these debt instruments are minimal. That's to say the margin moves up and down um, in insignificant amounts. And importantly, debt doesn't default if KPIs are missed, typically. And until it does, having sustainability-linked characteristics and debt instruments will likely not meaningfully impact on improved sustainability because they won't be important enough to the borrower to drive better behavior and practice. I think that's a key takeaway from what we're seeing today. You know, 2022 was not a good year for sustainability-linked loans and bonds. Last year on sustainability-linked bonds, the market saw a 37% decline on 2021 issuances, and there was a similar decline in the loan markets. A number of commentators have started to describe the sustainability-linked debt market as somewhat dysfunctional for this reason, and issuers have not really benefited much from the so-called greenium, the lowering of uh, the cost of their debt under these instruments. And similarly, issuers in no great numbers um, have suffered the disbenefit of increasing pricing as a result of failing to meet KPIs. Indeed, Polish oil business uh, PKA and Orlin became the first SLB issuer to pay a coupon step up last year with its coupon increasing by just one twentieth of one percent. 
I'm really worried that sustainability of linked debt in some cases can facilitate greenwashing, allowing issuers to overstate the impact of their ESG debt. Elliot, that's right. It goes back to what I said earlier about how KPIs must be genuine and really straight to bars and its performance in ESG and be independently chosen and verified. Greenwashing is a key issue in the French market at the moment, as it is everywhere I know. Julien Le Fournier, who is a lecturer at the University in Paris and a farmer banker at Crédit Agricole, said for hours choosing their own targets on sustainability linked debt was like the French singing contest in TV, Ecole des Femmes, <laughs> where kids pick their own songs and evaluate each other's. They all win, they all get the first prize. However, standardizing how, what, and how ESG metrics are measured and reported on may go some way to addressing the greenwashing problems. The real green bond standard, I know, is expected in a few months. And the ESA Working Group's report is expecting too soon. ESA is playing a leading role in the development of sustainability financing. And I'm conscious that we are no far having such on aging. Oliver, your partner on our derivative and aging team, could you please comment on the role that derivative have to play in this area? Thanks, of course. Um, so derivatives have a really key role in sustainable and transition finance, because after all, issuers of sustainability-linked debt still need to be able to hedge traditional risks such as interest rate exposure. Not only that, but derivatives are inherently flexible products, so they can themselves be structured to incentivize performance against ESG objectives. And there's already an established market for sustainability-linked derivatives, or SLDs, albeit one which remains very small as a proportion of the total market for finance-linked hedging. We tend to see SLDs used in conjunction with sustainability-linked debt, where they further incentivize performance against ESG criteria. So, for example, the margin payable under an SLD will often vary according to performance against the relevant KPIs along the lines, Elliot, that you discussed earlier. However, SLDs are not necessarily straightforward to implement, at least on the first occasion. It is not simply a case of applying the KPIs from a sustainability loan or bond and simply adding them into a derivatives contract. SLDs give rise to a host of structural and legal considerations which need to be worked through, and some of these may or may not come up when structuring the associated debt. So touching very briefly on these, and first in terms of structural considerations, possibly first and foremost, there is the question of how does the bank providing the SLD effectively hedge itself? So in contrast to a traditional interest rate or currency hedge, the cash flows with an SLD are subject to more variables making it more difficult to predict and hedge effectively. That, of course, then impacts on pricing for the SLD. And linked to pricing is the question of valuation. So given that cash flows under the SLD are contingent on those variables and certain events occurring or not, how do you predict the occurrence of those events at any particular time? And how do you value your derivative at any particular point in time? Also, how do you monitor the achievement or not of the KPIs? And going back to a point made earlier, 
if you rely on data or verification from a third party, is that cost effective? Does that actually make a transaction too burdensome from an administrative perspective? Another consideration is how would a change in circumstances affect the terms of a trade? So for example, if you have an SLD, which has KPIs linked to emissions, what would happen under the contract if the counterparty undertook a merger, which led to its total group emissions suddenly doubling overnight, for example? And then finally, how will an SLD be treated for tax and accounting purposes? And importantly, where you're hedging an associated debt, would you benefit from hedge accounting if you are the underlying borrower? And then touching briefly on the more legal and regulatory considerations, I think parties first need to consider how their SLD is going to be characterized for the purposes of applicable regulation. So if you look at EMIR in the EU and UK EMIR in the UK, not all contracts which we might call an SLD are necessarily going to be derivatives within scope of that regulation. Second key question, and assuming that your SLD is a derivative within scope of that regulation, is would the contract be classified as a hedging instrument? And therefore, is it excluded from counting towards the mandatory clearing and margining thresholds for non-financial counterparties? It can't necessarily be assumed that an SLD is a hedge 100% of the time. And then when documenting SLDs, we find that consideration needs to be given to uh, the rules against penalty clauses on some occasions. Because SLDs typically operate so as to vary payment obligations by reference to KPIs, they can sometimes operate so as to increase payment obligations where there is a failure to meet designated objectives. And conceptually, that is quite similar to a penalty clause where one party has failed to make a specified payment, uh, which results in a breach. And so sometimes that needs to be structured around to find a solution that works contractually. And then finally, it's probably worth flagging that uh, in the derivatives world, it's quite important to consider the enforceability of closeout netting with these products. And that can sometimes be taken for granted by people who are transacting in netting friendly jurisdictions. But there are various reasons why the enforceability of closeout netting with an SLD may be prejudiced, or why the SLD is not necessarily going to be within scope of the existing industry opinions. And so in some cases, it is going to be advisable or necessary to undertake a bespoke netting analysis for an SLD. So in view of those issues, I think it's really important that from where we are now, the industry moves to achieve a degree of standardization, which there isn't at the moment, as that is what is going to really drive efficiency and make these products more cost effective and make them more attractive to end users. ISDRA is taking a leading role in this area. France, as you said, so too are banks who are looking at really growing their platforms for offering these products. So although the market remains pretty nascent, I think we are optimistic and positive that we will see continued growth in these products. Great. Thanks, Ollie. Uh, okay, everyone, um, that is it from us. Um, please do get in touch with Piers and Lee on the bond side with France and me on the loan side, and of course, Ollie there um, on hedging. Thanks ever so much for joining us today, uh, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you.